Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Editor's Desk here on Business News Radio. I'm Felicity Duncan. With me on the line is Alec Hug. Alec, we are uh, doing this a little late. Uh, we usually chat on a Saturday and today is Sunday, but the reason is something quite exciting that you spent the day yesterday uh, exploring the really fascinating tale of a football club known as Lincoln City. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? It's an extraordinary story, Felicity. Uh, we, uh, it's four hours from London to Lincoln. So we decided to come via Cambridge and stayed over in Cambridge and went through I went through yesterday morning, and the reason why Lincoln City is uh, is, is kind of in the uh, forefront of my uh, focus at the moment is because it is a, a football club that is more than a hundred years old, but was uh, bought or control was bought of it by a group of South African guys who are well known in the financial services community from Peregrine. Um, it's Sean Melnick, who's the uh, founder of Peregrine, um, told me about the story about two or three years ago. And I was watching, I've been following them quite closely. The man behind it is Clive Nates. He's a hedge fund manager who retired a little while ago. He was with Peregrine Capital. And Clive uh, became, he, he'd always wanted to have a share in an English football club. And he found out that Lincoln City, which had once been a second division side, uh, it, it had fallen all the way down into non-leagues. So it had been outside of the major leagues, uh, the, the four major leagues in England. And they were in a bit of trouble with their bankers. The reason why he got involved was he thought, you know, here's maybe an opportunity for him to be able to engage with uh, or, or to, to, to help them out and to just see where it went from there. And it has been a fairy tale story because he got involved in the first place, Clive uh, put a bit of his money in. Then he brought Sean Melnick, his friend, along. Then he brought Ashley Mendelovitz, another friend, along. And then Greg Levine, who's with uh, Vitality over here, one of the top guys there, ex- uh, part of Discovery. And they've also brought in other South Africans to fund or to give the uh, the club the money. And the reason they've been happy to put money into it is because this club, which was down in the – well, in the second half of this non-league area, and it was heading uh, to obscurity when Clive came along. The first thing he did when he was uh, invited onto the board was to help them to find a new manager. Now, in, in football, it's a lot like business. If you've got the right leadership, it can make a massive difference. And they, they got these brothers, the only brothers who are managing a football club in, uh, well, certainly in, in the top leagues in England, um, and Danny and Nikki and uh, Cowley uh, from from uh, Essex, which is two or three hours away by car, and they they appointed them because they had young guys, but they'd had quite a nice uh, record. And in the first season, they won the uh, the league, uh, the non-league league, if you like. But more than that, they became the first club in 103 years non-league club to make it into the last eight of the FA Cup, which everybody around the world knows is a very famous competition in England. And from there, they moved the following year into what is called League Two, and they finished about mid-table. And then this year, they, they're they winning League Two by 10 points. And yesterday was a very big day because they were promoted. They were the first English club to be promoted to the next division. So they're now going into League One. And it's a wonderful story of a of a bunch of South Africans 
who've got involved with a group of people in Lincoln and they've rejuvenated this club and who knows where it's going to, but uh, they're having a wonderful ride at the moment and uh, I, I spent the day with them. An amazing story, and it's always nice to hear a South African angle on something like that, really going in and making a difference for a team that I'm sure is very important to the local people. It's, it is. The, as I say, when Clive first got involved, they'd get 50 people at a game. Now, it's quite a nice stadium. It holds 10,000 people. But because the club had fallen into such hard times, nobody was really bothered anymore. Yesterday, they were, they were fully sold. And in fact, all their games to the end of the season have been sold out. So they're going to have, uh, they, 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 it's almost like the community. And that's what it's, you know, I feel often as journalists, we spend too much time in our offices. But when we go out there and go and have a look at what's happening on the ground, you get a different complexion of things. And Clive, I mean, here's a hedge fund manager from Joburg who got himself involved in uh, football in England, where he walks around, people stop him and ask him for his autograph. Yeah, the, the fans, and it's just, it's just this this extraordinary story that you you have a a South African connection now with a with a football club in Middle England, and it really is in the just about the middle of the whole of England, where a whole town uh, has been transformed and is obsessed now about its team, which is a winning team. You know, last year. They, they won a thing called the Checker Trade Trophy, which is a, 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 a knockout cup for all the clubs in League One and League Two. Now, remember, they were only in League Two, kind of in the middle area. They beat everybody else there to win that, that cup at Wembley, and they took 30,000 fans from a town of 90,000 people. So you can imagine, this is, uh, it's just an extraordinary story and, and one that we, we should keep watching. And I guess as South Africans, uh, knowing the connection, Watching Lincoln City is now going to be something that I'll at least be looking for the results every week. A very, very cheerful story. And something, you know, it's nice to hear something so uplifting. Um, on obviously a slightly more negative tone, I wanted to pick up a little bit on uh, the what has been happening with Chris Stain. So this week, Chris uh, underwent a polygraph test trying to defend herself against claims that the the book, The Last Boys, was fabricated, um, that there was uh, journalistic malpractice, that there's no evidence. You know, she's just been being hammered by people saying that this is, you know, not a true story. And, and she eventually resorted to a polygraph test. And I think it's a fairly sad and strange story. Yeah, Chris, uh, I, I know her well. I worked with her for a couple of years. She's a complete thoroughbred. And she's not the kind of person who would go off at a tangent. I know with the story that she interviewed more than 25 people that she has, uh, it's something she's been working on for 30 years. She was pulled into the book quite by accident. Uh, The publishers had a policeman who'd done the investigation who almost wanted to get everything off his chest, a guy called Mark Minnie. And she was asked to come in and and, uh, I think initially to write the foreword. But after a while, she realized that she had also investigated this story. So she became the co-author. And it's very sad to me that people who should know better have been attacking her. And I say this because we, sitting on the outside, have evidence which supports, corroborates what she's, uh, what she's been talking about, what she's been writing. So you have these uh, worthies who are saying that she's made it up out of thin air. And yet we know that, that it isn't so. Um, the other thing that we know as well is that there have been some uh, pretty uh, heavy 
uh, insightful uh, investigations into her, into Chris herself. And this polygraph test that she took was as a consequence of the community, uh, mainly the Afrikaner community, who uh, don't agree that anything like this happened, that the pedophilia, um, which she writes about there at Bird Island, was was a figment of her imagination. So the head of the Polygraph Association globally was in South Africa recently. He's from the United States. And somebody um, who I know uh, put the two of them in touch. And Chris said, absolutely, she would love to do this polygraph test and did it and came through with flying colors. And we published that on Biz News. Now, we don't usually do this kind of thing where we get into somebody else's fight. But in this case, I just feel that it's appalling the way that Chris Stane has been treated uh, in the in the mass media. And indeed, uh, her professional integrity is at stake. So someone that I know as well as I do. Uh, and of course, we have corroborating evidence as well, which will come out in the fullness of time. But as we know, the wheels of justice grind slowly. So um, we, we uh, decided to publish her full polygraph test this week. And um, uh, just to, to, to support her, because you know what, what I find, Felicity, and I saw this with Barry Sargent, our, our former colleague who, who passed on. Barry used to put himself out there day after day after day. It was almost like he went into battle for the sake of the world or of his, of his count, of, of society. And often he would, he would get blows that were from uh, vested interests who just didn't want Barry to be saying or to be exposing what he was exposing. And Chris is a bit like that as well. She, she has nothing to gain. You know, when you write a book, believe me, I've done a couple myself, it's not a financial proposition. She's done it because she is that way. She's built that way. She's built like a Barry Sergeant. She just feels that the truth must come out in society's interest. And now to have her attacked uh, from people who actually should know better is is quite appalling. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because we, uh, to me, there's such a strong parallel with what's been happening around um, gangster state, right? Where people have been, you know, that's taking aim at a different community in South Africa, and people are responding in a very similar way, right? They just they are attacking uh, the book, they're attacking the journalist involved. They just, you know, they just don't want to hear the story. And it's really interesting to me that for Lost Boys is getting a sort of similar reception. Uh, from the community that it is, I don't want to say targeting, but the community that it's of interest to. So, you know, we're just seeing in, uh, people react that way when they feel that they're, uh, they're under threat, right? Um, and it's, it's not, everyone is, of course, very rightly very angry about how gangster state is being received. But it's interesting to me that really the reception to Lost Boys has been very similar. And I wonder why. Mm. I wonder why. It, it, uh, perhaps it's different communities, perhaps, I don't want to say it, but perhaps the one guy's a boy and the other guy's the other one's a girl. I, I don't know if there's inherent, you know, is Christine not good enough to get it right? Well, I, I've worked with her and she is. She's better than good enough. So I, I don't know where where all of this comes from. But what I can say is that there's the beginning of wisdom is that we realize we don't know what we don't know. And in this case, <clears throat> excuse me, if somebody has spent 30 years on a particular story, she knows a hell of a lot more than those who are coming in from the outside and being influenced by perhaps people who who uh, who have vested interests in some way. 
So I, I think the best thing in a case like this is to just say we trust the publishers have gone through their due diligences in both Gangster State with Peter Louis Marburg and uh, and with Chris Stain with Lost Boys and just know that they have a huge amount to risk at risk if they haven't got their facts correct. And in both cases, the facts are I, – I would, I would like to assume that the facts are correct. And in Chris's case, I know her so well – to know that she just wouldn't go off on a tangent and, and invent things. She just isn't made that way. She isn't built that way. So it'll be interesting to see as this all and, uh, comes out in the fullness of time uh, on both books uh, to see exactly where uh, it all ends up. We know that the contribution from the media and from people who wrote books have uh, and uh, uncovering some a lot of the stuff that happened uh, during the bad period of time in South Africa – has made a huge contribution and without their efforts and without their sacrifice and their selflessness, because this does come with a huge sacrifice. Uh, when you're, when you, when you're exposing the truth, there are plenty of antibodies that are kicking back against you. But to give them a, my sense is let the public just give them the benefit of the doubt. If those who are being attacked in the book are uh, that upset about it, sue them. That's what the whole world's about. There's a legal system there. If somebody comes and and uh, defames you, sue them and let it all come out in court because there uh, you, you get the opportunity to put your side of the story if you have a side of the story in this case. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, letting either the courts or the, you know, broader legal process address these things, I think you're right, is the way to go. And, and really nothing but respect for people who are willing to put themselves out there the way that they have, the way that Chris has and the way that um, my book mm. has, you know, just to, you're right. We should basically just be grateful as South Africans that people are willing to do that work. Now, something I think that has not inspired you with gratitude as a South African is your attempt to, or potentially to bring your car back to South Africa. Do you, <laughs> do you want to tell us? It's been so interesting to hear about your, your, uh, what you've been going through as you try to move back and not only the bureaucracy, but what it tells us about the broader world. And the story with your car, I think, is one of those things that's quite instructive. Well, we, we, uh, we came to the UK for a year, if you recall, in 2016. Yes. And just after arriving here, we realized you need a car. We didn't think we, we, we thought we may be able to get away with it, but not. So we bought a car. Um, and it's a, it's, it's just a modest vehicle. Um, we've now had it for three years, looked after it well. And my thought is, well, instead of losing 50% on, of the value of what we paid for it, let's bring it home. Uh, it, it doesn't cost that much more to take a 40 foot container than a 20 foot container. So we've made all the plans and everything. And the, the removals company said, no, they didn't think it was a problem until I read the fine print, which says that now, remember, we've been here three years, so uh, the car has now been owned for more than a year, so everything's happy from, from that point of view. The South African authorities say that you, unless you can convince them that you left the country with no intention of returning, you can't bring a car back as a returning citizen, which is a very interesting state of affairs because – or you can bring it back, but then you pay a duty of 65%. And so you stop value, for a minute what, the on an inflated on an inflated value mm. as well. So your market value um, is probably twenty percent below the book value yeah. uh, that they talk about. So 
I don't know what the inflated value is, but I've been warned that it is an inflated value over the book value. So I guess it could even be a, a valuation that's made in South Africa. Now, I, I can understand why the customs officials do this, because people, South Africans, could uh, game the system by coming over for a year, buying a Lamborghini and bringing that back into the country and saying, well, they've had it for a year, so they should be allowed to. But there, there does seem to be a, a little bit of a, a sledgehammer squashing a flea here because this is a very modest vehicle, but it does mean now we're going to have to leave it over here in the UK rather than bringing it home where it could be uh, a, quite a nice, uh, you know, it, it's a Peugeot. It'll keep going for another five, 10 years, who knows? Um, but it is an interesting point in that 65% duty tells me what the South African motor industry how that is being protected and subsidized. So it's, it's always these, these unintended consequences. The, the idea in South Africa is, well, let's have a motor industry and let's subsidize them and look after them because they employ people. But at what cost? If it's a 65% duty that we're paying on imported vehicles to keep a motor industry going, well, surely that's raising the entire stock of motor vehicle uh, production. And we do know that South African cars are more expensive to buy new than elsewhere. So the, this is a this this motor industry development program is something that the the government has be, uh, the old apartheid government began, the ANC or the, the 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 democratic government continued with, but it it is something that I don't know if we really looked at the figures in a lot of detail whether we would in fact say that this is the best thing for the country. All I know is that bringing a car back to South Africa as a returning citizen is a no-go unless you can convince uh, the customs authorities, which is a kind of impossible, that you never intended coming back in the first place. So it's, it's, a, it's been an interesting practical impact. Yeah, these tariffs, you know, people uh, people seem to have a different mental category for tariffs, right? So you've seen it in the US, now they're applying tariffs and all kinds of things, and a lot of people are like, yeah, like, put those tariffs on it, we're going to get the Chinese, but that's not actually how tariffs work. Tariffs are a form of tax, just like income tax, just like sales tax, just like VAT, they're a tax, and the person who pays the tax is the consumer. Uh, it's not... The, the Chinese are not paying the tariffs that uh, on the products that they are sending to the United States. Americans are paying those tariffs, right? And I saw a great piece working out, trying to work out what the impact was, the net impact of this, because on the one hand, it could be good, right? If people are paying these tariffs, but then that could be positive because it would mean more tax revenue that gets paid that can go into, you know, schools and, and things like that. But uh, what really actually ends up happening, and I'm, I'm using the example of the, um, the new tariffs on Chinese made goods in the United States, all that really happens is that the production moves to different jurisdictions that probably have higher costs than they would have had in China. So consumers end up paying more, but they're not paying more specifically on the tax, right? So they just have this sort of perverse incentive. And it must be a similar story in South Africa. As you say, you know, uh, we have enormous transit problems in the country, right? People really struggle to get from A to B. There's no decent public transport. Or there's a very small beginnings, rather, should we say, of public transport. And, you know, then if you're playing these inflated uh, prices for vehicles, you're just kind of keeping them out of more hands that they could otherwise be in and, and just sort of further making it more difficult for people who are already, you know, getting up at four in the morning to try and make their commute. So, you know, and 
and of course also just levying this gigantic tax on on the rest of the country and it's just you know people have a, a bit magical thinking a bit about trade stuff you know they don't really think uh realistically about how it actually works and i think tariffs are such a good example of this because you know there's always a big constituency in favor of tariffs but no one wants to pay taxes but of course tariffs are taxes so it's a bit nuts really for people to feel mm. that way well i i i love we were talking of a um, your explanation of uh, this fallacy that exists in the United Kingdom where the end of Brexit is going to mean cheap food because the UK then no longer will be forced to buy food from Europe and it can go anywhere in the world and and buy food because there's obviously tariffs on agriculture. But there's another side to that story. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think it's true if the UK does say, for example, hypothetically post-Brexit, remove all agriculture tariffs, they will completely be flooded with um, cheap food. There's no doubt of that. But the question then becomes, well, is this the food they want, right? Now, one of the biggest agricultural producers, in fact, I'm sorry, the biggest agricultural producer in the world is the United States. And the US has been having lots of fights with Europe for for many years about uh, protection of the agricultural markets. But a lot of the protection is actually around uh, health and safety practices that are allowable in the US that the um, European Union rejects. So for example, all the chicken in the United States gets washed with chlorine, with a, with a bleach solution. Um, the idea there is that they're going to get the salmonella off it, right? They, they bleach out all the chicken after it's been um, cut into portions uh, and then uh, in many cases they'll recolor it because obviously if you put bleach on something that's going to remove the color now the U americans say this is completely fine because it kills salmonella but the european union has uh, rejected this this bleach wash that they do with the chicken they don't want bleached chicken and the uk has you know itself many people also don't want that kind of chicken so and then this is just the chicken example. Of course, there are many other things, different rules around what hormones you can put into animals, um, all sorts of different uh, things from, you know, farm to fork. There's a totally different food system in the U.S. And American food system produces extremely cheap food in very large amounts. That's why agricultural products are among the biggest categories of U.S. exports, right? But are the British going to want cheap food that's prepared in ways that they might be concerned about with, for example, having this bleach wash? Now, I'm not making a statement about whether I think that's safe or not. I'm just saying, you know, this cheap food isn't – you may be paying in other ways, right, for very cheap food. Um, and, and, of course, then you have to ask, like, what – so is the idea that then Britain will just be completely reliant on food imports and won't have a domestic agricultural sector? Or are they going to keep subsidizing that sector? You know, this is a very complicated thing. And I think none of these decisions around trade are simple. And people try to make them simple. Yeah, just to close off with on, on that front, um, the next big tobacco uh, knows how it has uh, – well, we know what's happened with t big tobacco – and we're seeing that that's going to now start happening, happening with big pharma and big food because the research processes, as, we, as we're seeing in California with these um, the court cases around Roundup, the research processes are not entirely uh, accurate and, and fair and, and uh, true. So if you can prove that, uh, that, that somebody somewhere has been uh, – has turned a blind eye or has allowed or has listened to research – 
that is perhaps not 100% accurate, well, uh, how does that all unwind? In the same way as in the 50s, it was supposed to be good, uh, in the 1950s, very good for you to smoke cigarettes. And all the, the, the big actors um, would uh, endorse that in movies and, and in adverts. Today, we're horrified by that possibility. Will we turn around in, I don't know, 10, 15 years' time and say it was a similar thing with the food? Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to read a transcript of this interview, one is available on business.com up in the premium section. You can sign up for premium. It's £5 a month, and that gives you access to our great content and full digital access to the Wall Street Journal.